Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We are in the middle of our summer series um, that coincides with this part of my doctoral project I'm working on. So, uh, reminder, things a little different this summer uh, that way. Uh, but you guys have been doing a great job and helping me out and interacting well and I'm very, very thankful for that. I was reminded of a phrase my grandmother used to use all the time. I'm not even sure I completely understand it, but uh, she would always use the phrase, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Um, and and, and I, that's a great phrase. I, what I don't understand about it is I feel like if the creek rises, that's the Lord also. So I'm not sure. But that just is a great phrase I grew up with a lot. Lord willing, the creek don't rise. I'll walk in December. So um, by God's grace, you are really helping with that. And this morning... We're actually going to do things even a little bit more different, and um, there are things you can do in teaching to help people grasp truths and to embrace them and to learn from them, uh, and so part of what they would require me to do in my project is to use lots of those so that when I sit for this doctoral defense and I get grilled uh, for a couple hours by a couple of professors, they'll ask me, well, what did you do to help the students understand and learn and grasp these truths? What are some methods that you use. And so I want to use as many of those as possible. So um, you didn't know this, but God also made you a guinea pig. So thank you um, for that this morning. And so we're, we are going to, we're, we're in lesson six of eight. So we've got six, seven, and eight left to go. Um, and so this morning we are going to unpack Romans 12, 9. We are going to bring application um, in that way. But I want us to start a little bit differently with maybe a way to to get moving and this morning. And so, yeah, you're going to have to get up and walk around a little bit. That's going to be okay. Um, We've we got some folks that will take you. You're like, man, it's going to take me a long time to get there. You're fine. Uh, that doesn't bother any one of us a bit. Um, it'll be okay. But I, this is what I want you to do. So you can close your Bibles for now. You will open them in a few minutes. Worry not. Fret not. Um, but this is what I want you to do. If you grew up in a home where you had siblings, and let me ask you this, for, this way first. Is there anyone in the room you were an only child? How many only children? We've got two of you fine folks. Great. <laughs> that actually makes this first one easier. Um, did any of you grow up in a home where you only had brothers? Only brothers. Okay. Put this. Any of you that only had sisters? And, and then the rest of you had both, correct? Great. Then those are the groups I want you to get into. So if you had brothers and sisters, could you just come up here for me and, and gather up here? If you were an only child, Laura, could you just go help Sandy out over there? <laughs> there you go. You had more in common than you realized. If you only had sisters, how about that back corner back there? Um, and so what's this group up here? Brothers and, Brother, brothers and sisters. We got sisters back there, brothers up here, brothers up here. I would be, if I could walk, I'd be over here with you guys. People are like, where am, I, where am I going? It's all right. <laughs> great, great, great. You don't, um, if you can grab a seat, that'd be helpful. You're going to move again in just a minute. Just a minute, you will. You're like, I'm not even going to remember where I started from. That's okay. That's okay. That's all right. So let me ask this question. Let me ask this question. Um, first one, first one. What are some things that you think you learned or maybe didn't learn because of your particular group? So what might be some things you learned or didn't learn by being an only child or uh, conversely by having siblings? What are some things maybe you learned because you had sisters 
um, or you only had brothers, for example. So what might be some of those things that, that you think maybe even changed your life a little bit because of having siblings or the kind of sibling makeup that you had? Um, great, Janelle. I curse you now. <laughs> wow, she never had to share a room because it was one boy and one girl. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I bet then college was a whirlwind. That was a new, I'm not saying it was a bad experience, but that's a whole new world, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Somebody else, that's very good, very helpful. The exact kind of thing. Yeah, Laura. Ooh. It, yeah, how many of you first children, the oldest in your family, you can identify with that? With that? Absolutely. I, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is great. Laura, good, good. Something else. Somebody, you say, yeah, June. Yeah, the older ones learn to take care of younger ones. Great, yeah, yeah. I guarantee you I've changed more diapers than most guys before they're 18 because I had two very younger brothers uh, that, that I did a lot of taking care of, for sure, for sure, yeah. Somebody else. Brother, I don't, I, I don't even know your name, but good to have you this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, right here. Hmm. Or at least reveals our lacks of it, right? <laughs> right? That's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, Mary. Yeah. Wow. Wow. This is great. Now we know when we care BC preschool, Mary Warden, president. And she's like, I'm done. No. Now you just play with grandbabies, right? Like that's the profession now, right? Right. Great. Great. Um, okay. So let me, let me ask this then. Um, anybody have any like this dangerous any regrets? Anything that you're like, man, I, I did wish for this, but I think it would have been helpful, and I know it's, I'm not doubting God's sovereignty, but, but I have a regret. I wish I'd had this. This would have been helpful. Yeah, Doc? I don't know if this counts, but we're a blended family. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so she said she, she came into a blended family with some siblings before she ever even existed. Really wish there would have been a greater contact over the years of being able to have that kind of connection. Yeah. Um, I know for me, I only had brothers. I had three brothers. I have one older and two younger. Um, <laughs> women were a complete and profound mystery to, to me in every way, shape, or form. Uh, just this morning, and, and all of you married and or have had sisters, women understand this, I went to, to shave and there was like a long hair attached to my razor. I'm like, and that certainly did not come from me. Like there's just, there's things I did not know existed in the world of women and there's hair everywhere. Uh, and that's okay. And all the women are like, yeah, and look at your sink after you finish shaving and talk to me about that. So there are certainly things, a profound mystery. Okay, now I'm going to have you move one more time, one more time. Um, uh, just for sake of time. This one's a little tougher, a little tougher. 
but I want these in a pre-Kennerly Road context. Get in a group, and we'll do it this way on this side. If, if the first thing would jump in your mind, if I said past church experiences, and if I were to ask you, was that negative or positive? If the first thing that comes maybe to mind as you think about it pretty quickly, man, I had some negative past church. Before Kennerly Road, I had some negative, and we're not going to gossip about other churches and all that. We are going to ask some questions. But, man, I had some negative past church experiences. I want you to move to this side, and shockingly enough, if the first thing that kind of comes to the forefront is I had some real positive ones, past church, I want you to go to this side. So go ahead and move. Negative over here, positive over here. Some people are like, nobody wants to be on the negative side. But, but, but seriously, seriously. And again, we're not going to gossip. I'm going to ask some questions. It's going to be okay. But you're like, yeah, man, that was, that was a tough experience. There's some tough things that way. Because, Nicolette, you're a counselor like me. And that's when I'd be like, well, come on now. <laughs> Don't make me choose. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, so in a very general way, very general, so I'm not looking for lots of specificity. We're certainly not here to gossip or slander any other churches, so you must leave the names out, whatever. Um, you know, you can't even do what I famously do. Um, well, I'm not going to mention my pastor's name, but his initials were Tom Jones, you know, whatever, like you can't, nothing like that, nothing like that. It's located over, you know, but just in very general terms, um, what made those experiences good or bad? Like if you could boil it down, Twitter feed length, what made it good or bad? Like, so when you thought negative, what, what, what cupped your mind or positive, what, what, what really jumped out at you? Um, Bethann. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I would, like, when, when we got married, she has one aunt and two uncles, and then an additional, I don't know, like, five other sets of aunts and uncles in Greenville when I, oh, well, this is Aunt Margie and Uncle Wayne, this is Aunt Portia and Uncle Danny, this, it was, this is, this is Aunt, uh, Aunt Sarah and Uncle Jan, like, it was like this endless, because they really were family, absolutely, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Um, positive or negative, what are... What are some things in a general way that you jumps to your mind that was negative, that felt negative or felt positive? Brenda? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, uh, Darren, I'll go Darren first. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I so I would so agree with that, um, man. I, I think I, like I struggle with some of the residual effects for me to this day that way. Drilled into me, I could lose my salvation. Just drilled hard into me left me terrified and questioning lots over the years and, and, and other, other issues. Yeah, yeah, good. I'll maybe take a couple more. Yeah, J June. We all worked together in the church hmm. um, when we lost pastor. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful moment, isn't it? Uh, so often out of trials like that uh, is the soil from which God just brings forth just rich fruit. Yeah, good. Somebody, I'm going to take one more on the negative side. One more, only one. Yeah. Yeah, it's painful. It's, it's super painful. Super painful. Okay, just because I'm now wired this way, I'll take one more for positive. Like, I think we, Aaron, this is the only church you've known, so you can't answer. I'm sorry. Um, but, but Eric, Eric. Yes. <laughs> Facts. Yes. And you found Jesus. That's, that's just so much better. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, for uh, bending to my wishes. Go ahead and find your seats again. That would be wonderful. I'll give you a few minutes here. appreciate your participation and um, it's interesting every single week uh, when I write these sermons I send them away to an expert review panel and um, Brian Pate he's one of our missionaries down in Brazil and Darren and then um, a friend of mine who's finishing his PhD up in uh, southeastern and then uh, my brother-in-law who's a pastor in Hampton Park Every week, I send it away, and they send it back. And that last one was a suggestion from one of the guys. And they said, because I think what you're going to preach on, I think what you'll find is those positive and negative experiences are actually going to prove your point in your sermon. And he was right. And so I'm so thankful for Ben and um, thankful for that kind of interaction. And so as we think about union with Christ, and we think about what it means for us to be in Christ and Christ to be in us. Last week we learned that we are designed for community. And this community is inhabited by Christ. It's made up of people who are united with Christ, who are equipped to showcase him through their spiritual gifts. It really is like a family. We learned even together the, the critical nature of having everybody serving and functioning so that we don't end up with some kind of strange Christ where it's just the eyeball or just the ear but that we are little Christ bearers, and as we work together using our spiritual gifts, we showcase Christ to this world. Darren even read this morning from 1 John chapter 4 that God is not physically, visibly present among us on this planet right now, but he is actually through the love that we have and that we demonstrate. And we'll see that again in 1 John chapter 4 later. Well, what's fascinating is what the rest of Romans 12 gets at is frankly how hard these relationships can be. Family is wonderful, and family can be really hard, can it? Uh, working through difficulties, conflict resolution, um, differences of opinion, differences of gifting. Um, in our family, uh, if you were to take us, give us all a personality test, one of us is an ambivert. That means extrovert, introvert, depending on the situation. Uh, everyone else in the home is a strong introvert, and then we have one strong, like, pegged extrovert. 
And our pegged extrovert loves to talk all the time with everybody, always. And so it's like hard for them. And one time, pleadingly, when we were all like, can we just have some quiet? They just looked at us in this, this, this plaintive cry. But you don't know how hard it is to be an extrovert in this family. <laughs> and we don't. Like, at the end of the day, we don't. And, and it's hard. So sometimes there's things that are just good about us but make doing family life hard. And... And, and so how do we think through that? Well, the Bible doesn't ignore that. Paul doesn't ignore that in Romans. So we're going to spend the next two sessions, uh, session six, session seven, thinking about how does union with Christ define, guide, and address these community relationships that we have. In fact, we can be so bold as to say that our union with Christ and that reality and others should be the controlling and dominant way that we relate to each other. And so our big takeaway this morning will be this, the life of Christ is the pattern for our relationships, but our union with Christ is the power that enables that pattern. And so let's start trying to think through and work through Romans chapter 12, verse 9 together this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let me read verse 9. If I were going to read down through the end of the chapter, there, there are so many commands here. And what Paul is doing with verse 9 is he's giving us almost an umbrella term that all the rest of the commands unpack or um, give practical expression to, they give application for. And so Romans 12, 9 says this, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now just to show what I was just saying, let me just continue reading for at least a few verses for you to get this. Now we get this application, love one another with brotherly affection. Another application, outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Can I just pause and ask this question? I'll read a few more in a moment. Are these suggestions or commands? They're commands, aren't they? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. There's, there's, let's see, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. Three commands just in that verse. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be hot. Do you see how it's just one command after another rapid fire? All of them are unpacking, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. You know, it's fascinating. Paul is such a consistent author. And of course, we know it's the Holy Spirit uh, speaking through Paul, right? Um, but there's such a radical consistency in Paul's writing. And you can see it in this concept here. Uh, if we were to go back to Ephesians chapter 4, and he tells us that God has given certain gifts to the body, have given um, apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the body to do the work of the ministry, and then the very next thing he tells them to do, what does this look like? He says, speak the truth in love. But you know, it's not just there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he lists all the gifts. What do we know 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as? As the love chapter. Well, it really shouldn't surprise us that he just finished rattling off a bunch of spiritual gifts, and the very next thing he says is, let love be genuine. For Paul to do it in each of these situations, and these are the three dominant areas where Paul speaks about spiritual gifts, we could also go to Peter's writings of 1 Peter chapter 4. But for every time for Paul, for the first thing to come to his brain, 
But the first thing for him to want to write and put out there is after he talks about how different we are. Because some of us are teachers and some of us are not. And some of us are exhorters and some of us are, are, have the gift of mercy. And some of us have the gift of hospitality. And some of us have the gift of leadership. Some of us have the gift of administration and giving. And, and so we're so different in so many ways. And we come into a situation and, and if someone were to walk through a church fellowship and drop a bunch of food, this person reacts this way, this person, like there's such different reactions that sometimes those differences can begin to tear us apart at the seams. And we can forget that those are actually all beautiful expressions of Christ. And so Paul knows the next thing I've got to go after is love. This family, with all of its diversity, needs to be reminded of love. And so how do we think even more through it? Well, the first thing I, I want to tell us is that this is a love that reveals sin. And here's what I mean by that. The love that we're being called to showcase in this community is the very love of God himself. This is not the same love that uh, a parent might naturally have for their child or that a child may naturally have for their parent. This is not the same love that you have for a friend or for a hobby or for anything else or for your favorite car or your favorite tool. It, it, it's not the same love. This is a divine love. This is a godlike love. This command that there exists that we are to love God and love others in part, is part and parcel of the law that you and I could never keep. We are told by God, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, uh, love the Lord your God, and the second is like it, love your neighbor. These are part of the law that condemns us because we don't do it. Because we can't do it in and of ourselves. It's utterly impossible. In fact, Jesus even uses our natural love to contrast what gospel love looks like. Uh, do you remember what he says in Matthew 10, 37 and 39? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the love. When he says, let love be genuine, this is a sin-revealing kind of love. This is not just a natural affection. This is a love that can only happen as a result of the work of the Spirit and the presence of God himself in our lives. It's at the very heart of gospel belief. It has never been enough to know about God. It's never been enough to know who he is. Rather, it has always been a command to love him and others. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, right off the bat, as God is commanding the nation of Israel, he says, love the Lord your God. God commands us to love him. Now, that is incredibly offensive to lots of people. Incredibly offensive. So I want to be crystal clear, as clear as I possibly can be. God is not sitting in heaven desperately waiting for all these lost little people to come to him and finally decide that he is worthy of their love and for them to suddenly say, oh, I love you, God. No, to be very clear, he is the sovereign creating God of this universe and he looks down at all these lost people and he says, you must love me. And if you don't, you are in sin and you will be condemned. That's offensive. 
God is demanding from us something that we can't give on our own. He's demanding from us something that we can't manufacture. He's demanding from us something that in any other circumstance, in any other relational context, we would think there's a problem with that. And we live in a culture where we have these famous phrases like, if you love them, let, they go, let them go, and if it's true love, they'll return to you. And the reality is, in our lost condition, we are hell-bent running as far away from God as we can get until he sets his love on us. This is a love that reveals sinfulness. But it doesn't just reveal sinfulness. And that, and that would be such a terrible story if that was all there is. It's also a love that shows grace. Love, this kind of love, is not only a declaration of our sinful need, it actually is used by God. God's love that he's now commanding us to have toward him and toward others is also the kind of love that uses, he uses to showcase his own glory in the gospel. The most famous passage, they hang it, people write it on signs and do it in a football stadium, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The reality is he's commanding those to love him whom he has first loved, whom he has died for, he sacrificed his son for. I love you people. I wouldn't kill any of my kids for you. End of story. There is such a desperate drowning in his grace when we come to a right understanding of who we are in our sinfulness, unlovable, unloving little wretches, that he has lavished upon us the greatest depths of his glorious grace in sacrificing his son for our sin. This is a love that shows grace. Romans 5, 6-8, while we were still weak at the right time, at the right time, I love that, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that. So if you back up, then you realize, oh, I'm not godly and I'm not righteous, and he died for me. This proves his love for us, right? This showcases his grace and his glory. I've told some of you this story before. When I was a little boy, my dad took us to Andrews Air Force Base just outside of D.C. We went to an air show. They had an air show every single year. Went to an air show. Part of the air show, at one point, they had F-14 Tomcats. Some of you are like, what in the world is that? Top Gun, Maverick, plane. Old guy, right? Swept wings. And this F-14 did all these maneuvers. Came, I remember it coming across the airfield at one point. I don't know how off the ground it was, but it was vertical, just almost vertical, using its, its jet engines just slowly go across, and then it got about to the midpoint, turned vertical, shot, and you couldn't even see it anymore. It made another pass. You heard the sonic boom. So the F-14, the pilot, he lands the plane, he taxis it away, and you could go over and talk to the pilot. And so my dad took my, my older brother and me. We went over there, and we're talking to the pilot, and a photographer comes up for whatever the um, I don't, and I don't know if it was an Air Force or Navy Tomcat, to be honest with you, but for whatever military paper, base paper, they want to take a photo. And so they looked around, and they see me, and they say, hey, kid, do you want to be in the photo? Well, yeah. They carry me over. The pilot walks me up and put me in the cockpit of the F-14 he just flown. Highlight of my life right here, baby. He says, don't pull this, don't touch this, don't touch this, don't touch that. I'm not touching a thing. 
But it was amazing. I looked out the side, took a photo. Go back to school the next week. I was still young enough. I don't remember what grade I was in, but I was young enough for them to say, show and tell time. I go for show and tell time, and do I have a story to tell? I tell my story, and they all start laughing at me. They thought I was lying through my teeth. They started calling me Jet Boy. It was miserable. I hated it. it made me angry. I couldn't get away from it. I was at home, come home one day from school, a few weeks later, walk in. My mom says, hey, there's a package on the kitchen table for you. Walk in, there's a vanilla envelope. I, you know, when you're that young, you don't get mail. I tear open the mail, I pull it out, and it was a base newspaper. On the front page of the base newspaper was a photo of Steve Johns sitting in the cockpit of the F-14. I mean, I could wait till the next show and tell. <laughs> right? It's on like the break of dawn. So I wait till the next show and tell. I have the newspaper hidden because I had a flair for the dramatic even as a child. I waited. I go for show and tell. I walked up, and all I did was went, bam! <laughs> and I proved it. No more Jet Boy. Everybody wanted to be my friend. Yeah. When we prove something, we make it an undeniable fact. One of the greatest questions that people wrestle with is, does God love me? He proved it with the death of Christ for us. It showcases his grace. And so this is a love because it's a divine love that reveals sin. It's a love that's going to show grace to us. But it's also a love that transforms and leaves us transformed. One of the things the gospel does is set us free to love God and others. A heart that is transformed by the gospel will be a heart that loves God and others. Darren read this morning from 1 John chapter 4. It's so significant that it's a test of salvation. You could actually look at a person and ask them this question, uh, are you a believer? And if they were to say yes, you could then ask this follow-up question, could you please tell me how you see God's spirit transforming you to love him and others more? 1 John 4, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So it's so significant, it's a test of salvation. It's a sign, it's a symptom it's an indicator of a person that has been saved because it's a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. One of the fruits of the Spirit is love. And again, this is a divine kind of love. This is the kind of love that actually can turn the other cheek. This is the kind of love that forbears and forgives. This is the kind of love when a coat is demanded of you, give them your cloak also. When they ask you to go a mile, you go too. This is only possible because of the fruit of the Spirit. It's essential to our relationship with Christ and ongoing obedience to God. Jesus explained it this way to his disciples in John 15, 9 through 10. As my Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. What does this life love look like then for you and me? There's a lot of definitions we could use. I'll borrow one from Paul Tripp. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving of that love. It's very common in homes, unfortunately, that they operate on a spectrum of love, of love being a commodity. 
the, the nicest end of that spectrum. In other words, the best of the worst <laughs> is you hurt somebody in your home and your family life and your relationships and they give you the silent treatment or they delay in forgiving you or, um, or if they've offended, then they try to buy back your love with gifts or service. That's treating love as a commodity. That's the smallest. This is not uncommon. It's still error and it's really bad in your home. But that's the smallest end. The most extreme ends, then love becomes weaponized and is an abusive tool. It's dripped into your life to get something from you. It's withheld from you to control you or to punish you. It's used as a tool of manipulation. It's weaponized. Uh, you never know when you're going to get it. You never know when you're going to lose it. And the only way to operate in that love realm of a commodity is to do whatever that person demands to make them happy. It's a spectrum of it. It's all evil. All of it. And I know in this moment, I'm, as they used to say in Baltimore, I'm all on your street. I am stepping on your toes. I know this because we are all prone to this. Divine love is a sacrificial love toward people not deserving that doesn't demand reciprocity from them to get it. And so some of you are saying, but what about God? Great. Are you breathing air in this moment? Thank God for his love then. Saved or lost? Does he call the rain to fall on the just and the unjust? Does he give grace? Is he giving opportunity for repentance and salvation from your own sin that you caused? Absolutely. And so how do we even work through this in maybe even a deeper level. So that's like maybe first level. We love because we've been loved. Where can we really look for, for a pattern of this love then? Well, the model for our love is the love of Christ. And so how do we have this Christ-like love? Well, what he says here, back in Romans, Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Stop. Don't go away. Um, I don't know why it's doing that. going to do what it's going to do. So the first thing he says is let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Before we talk about then holding fast to what is good, there's a lot of talk in this world. As the famous song goes, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Of course, we know the way the world thinks about love is not biblical and can't be our model. And at the same time, God is love, and yet we see Jesus running people out of the temple with a threefold cord turned into whips on one page, and defending a prostitute to the Pharisees on another page, which one is loving? Both are somehow. The seven woes to the Pharisees of Jesus is loving. But so is the moment when the father brings his demon-possessed son after the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples can't heal him. The disciples can't cast the demon out. Jesus looks at him and says, if you have faith to believe, the father says, I believe, yet help my unbelief. And Jesus delivers the son. And so how do we really model our love like that of Christ? Well, it has to begin with the character of Christ. And the first thing he says is hate that which is evil. Paul is not coming up with this on his own. He's really even bringing this quote from Psalm 97. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of the saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Why does the psalmist link this love of God with a hatred of evil? Love the Lord, hate evil. 
Well, the rest of the verse tells us. We operate thinking that self-preservation can and does happen through sinful means. I was talking to someone this past week. There was a lot of pain in my childhood, a lot of pain in my growing up years. And so I learned how to not get hurt. I hit you first. That's what I learned. When Gilbert Letter, every, every, every single lunch period, every single one would stand behind me and flick the back of my head and kick me in the back of my knees and, and use language that is just unbelievable. You'd have thought that the dude had grown up as a sailor. He'd say things to me nonstop. He picked on me. He hit me. He would mistreat me all the time. He was bigger than I was, taller than I was. What am I supposed to do? I left... I went home every day bullied and just, I dreaded it. I tried to avoid him at all costs, tried to do everything, and finally I was done. So I put two rolls of quarters in my pockets. Next day, I waited for him to say something, made sure he was behind me. I turned around and hit him and kept hitting him until they pulled me off of him. I learned a coping mechanism. The coping mechanism was this. If you want to avoid getting hurt, hit him first. There's nothing fair in a street fight. I'd rather win than you think I'm chivalrous. Do you think that messes with you emotionally? you think that damages you relationally? Because you get out of your junior high and high school years and it's not fist fights anymore, is it? It's relational connections with people. But you've already learned this coping mechanism, I'll hurt you before you can hurt me. And you end up keeping everybody like this. And you think it's made you safe. But all it's done is make you lonely. And afraid. You see, we think we can avoid evil by doing evil. We come up with evil coping mechanisms for the pain of our life and for the evil done to us. Like, I'm a, like you know this, I'm, I'm a gun guy. I got a couple guns. Enjoy my guns. Um, I've had a concealed permit. I think it's lapsed right now. I have a problem with them. You used to always get guns in Ammo Magazine. If you're into that, great, fine. I just want to tell you something that got to me that started frustrating me because I would talk to other Christians. This has been over 20 years ago. And they would j make jokes like this. Yeah, if somebody ever looks like they're going to rob my house, I'll shoot them on the doorstep and drag them inside because, you know, they can't prosecute you if you killed them inside your house. Ha, 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 ha. And I was a little bit like, I don't think I'm down with that. I don't think I'm down with homicide that I cover up out of fear. I'm not saying don't defend your family. I'm not. I just told you I'm a gun guy. Concealed care permit, whole nine yards. But I am telling you the mindset that I can avoid evil by doing evil is prevalent in us, isn't it? If I'm gossiped about, how do I fight it? With gossip. If I'm slandered, how do I fight it? With slander. I'll hurt you before you can hurt me. Or if you do hurt me, I'll make you regret it every day of your life. And I'll punish you emotionally, relationally. I'll always bring it up to you. And part of what he's telling us is if we love the Lord, hate evil, and you can tell because who preserves our lives? He preserves the lives of his saints. If you're on mission for self-preservation, I guarantee you you're sinning against somebody. Somebody's paying the price. Somebody's paying the cost. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked. The reality is in Christ, we don't repay evil for evil. We don't avenge ourselves. 
We don't slander those who slander us. We don't gossip about those who gossip about us. We don't seek the hurt of others that have hurt us. Instead, we hate evil from enemies, but we hate evil so much, we refuse to repay their evil with evil of our own. Be angry and sin not. And so he tells us, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. But then he goes forward and he says, hold to that which is good. He's going back to the text of scripture again. He's going to Amos. Amos, I know the book that you all are so familiar with. You know, oh, easily, I remember. But in Amos, he said this, Amos 5, 14 through 15, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. As you have said, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now, this is fascinating to me. Amos 5 is building on this theme of oppression of the weak and the poor. It's one of the horrible things that went on in the nation of Israel. Lots of people think that the nation of Israel went into captivity in Babylon because of idolatry. They did. But lots of people forget all the symptoms of their idolatry. They didn't take care of widows. They abused orphans. They didn't take care of strangers. They didn't take care of people that were, that were in their land, not of their land. They didn't feed the weak. They didn't care for them. They didn't clothe them because it was all about a me world. And they were unjust in their courts. All of these were expressions of idolatry because at the core, what idolatry is, is how can I get for me? How can I control and manipulate a God to make my life better? That's what idolatry is at the core. And so there's all this evil going on. He's saying, no, you should seize what is good. In verse 10 of Amos chapter 5, there's a despise of an impartial judge. There's a rejection of those that speak truth. In verse 11, there's oppression of the poor through taxation. It's systemic and it's organized in order to fill the bank accounts of the wealthy for them to be safer. Houses of stone, more comfortable vineyards. Verse 12, there's the affliction of the righteous, bribery, and more rejection of the poor. Why all these things? Because there's an embracing of evil and a rejection of good. Because it serves their self-advancement. We do this all the time. We ask first and foremost, how will this affect me before we consider how others will be impacted by that law or that legislation or that decision or that decision in church or that decision in my home? It's this kind of love that's genuine because it's not seeking its own good. It's seeking the best for others. And as we've already begun to see, and my guess is as you've already begun to think and experience this morning, it's not natural to any of us. Instead, it's Christ in us coming out of us. We're seeing in real time what we began learning in Romans 12 several weeks ago, where he tells us we must be transformed in the way we think. We must not be pressed into the mold of the way the world operates. Me first. Having been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, we are to love other people the way he loves them. I wonder if sometimes at the very root of how poorly we love others is our lack of comprehension of how deeply he loves us. And it frees us then to not love other people very well. You see, because when we begin to live in the truth that this morning, just so, for example, for me, this morning I could, I could preach this whole sermon and mess up and um, maybe misquote someone, misapply, um, 
not be all on, um, operate in a fear of man, maybe be selfish, be looking for affirmation, be struggling, but there's still yet a part of me because of the spirit that I'm just trying to serve Jesus. The truth is this, God, my Father, is looking at me and would judge rightly all those things, and yet at the end of the day, if I were to die right here, right here, right now, he would say, enter in, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. I love you. I love you. I'm actually not looking for perfection from you. You could never give it. That's why I sent my perfect son on your behalf. I love you, Stephen. It's okay. When we begin to wash in that kind of love, I think we stop putting people in the balances, do you deserve my love? Do you have to earn my love? No, because it becomes a Christ-like love. Having been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection, we're to love others like he loves them. It's a genuine love that hates evil, clings to the good in our relationships with others. And then thirdly, then, it does good. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to, cling to. There's this active embracing of doing good. Should it be any wonder that we are called in our relationships with other believers to push each other to love and good works? Part of the reason we're supposed to gather together Sunday mornings even, Hebrews 10, 24, 24 through 25, is to push each other to love and to good works. To push, provoke even. You could use one phrase, to prod uh, each other to love and good works. We give one another the opportunity for love and good works because sometimes in the body you're the one weeping and someone else is rejoicing. Sometimes you're rejoicing, someone else is weeping. Sometimes you need and sometimes you have that which you can give, but it's a pushing to love and good works. And that's part of the reason we're here. We need that prompting. The culmination of hating evil and loving good is a life that is now transformed by love and now shows love. It makes no sense to say, I really, really love that person, but I never told them or showed them. Can you fathom that? I mean, it's terrible. Christ does good by seeking justice and showing mercy. Seeking justice is not repaying evil for evil. It's letting the righteousness reign. Not seeking justice is actually clinging to evil. Don't buy into Satan's lies that tries to flip the script on everything. Christ does good by serving and sacrificing. Christ does good by pursuing Peter when he's ashamed and broken. Christ does good born out of his love, and we will also seek to do good as a reflection of his love in us. The life of Christ is the pattern for our relationships, but our union with Christ is the power that enables living that pattern. If you're sitting here saying, I can't do this, you're right, you can't, but if you are in Christ, he does in you and through you. He does. You know, with amazing opportunities. And so I'd finish here with how Jesus is both the power and the pattern. Our lack of godly love shows our sinfulness and our need of salvation. Salvation applies the love of God to us by rescuing us through Christ. Union with Christ seats, places, immerses the person and the power of Christ in us so we're now set free to love God and others like we never could before. Uh, some time ago, I um, 
There's a guy broken down on the side of the road up here, uh, the road that goes by Walmart, head up towards the highway. Um, and so I, <laughs> I'm a car guy. So anytime I can, I always stop and see if I can help. That's just that's what I do. I enjoy doing it. My dad drilled it into me, thankful for my dad that way. And I see this guy, and, and they're having a brutal time. It's two cars. So I pulled over. I stopped. And I say, hey, you know, can it, what, you, what do you got going on? And can I help you? Oh, I've got a flat tire, and they didn't have the – they, they couldn't quite figure out how to get the lug nuts off. Um, I don't know what tire shop it was. They'd thrown these things on with the world's highest rated impact gun. God bless those brothers. Um, or serve them with justice, as it may be. So I'm out there, and I help the guy, and I'm out there sweating, and, you know, because it's, I don't know, it's probably November, and it's still 90 degrees with 90% humidity. And we get the tire off, we get it changed, and he looks at me, and he says these words, you are a godsend. He was actually more right than he knows. And he, then he asked me, where, where are you from? What do you do? I said, I got to tell him, I'm, I'm actually a pastor over here, and it's nice because everybody knows where the YMCA is, so they all know where our church is at. And he said, where are you from? You're not from, you're not from down here, are you? You're from around here, and I'm not. I'm from Baltimore, so that's where I'm from, and and he goes, yeah, he said, because on, it was sunset, it was a Sunday night, Sunday evening, and he said, because white men in their 40s don't stop and help young black guys change tires down here at night. Well, I don't know how true that is, but it certainly is true for him. You're a godsend. Was that Steve Johns? I don't think so. Not for one second. Because I was driving to go pick up Subway for dinner, you know. What was it? That was Christ. Or several months ago when I was having a problem and I called Gary and he dropped all he was doing to come help me. Or just the other day I needed something because we had a major coffee spell. <laughs> and I called up Will and he gave... You know what? I wasn't interacting with Gary or Will or those of you that showed up at my house with meals or gifts or flowers. I was, I was interacting with Jesus in you in those moments. And I was experiencing that moment, the love of Christ in you coming out of you. That's union with Christ. He is both a, our pattern. He teaches us how, but he is our power to be able to do this. Here's what I'm saying to you then. When you and I are not loving this way, it actually, it actually could be even that we're lost. We have a lot of head knowledge, but we don't know him. But it could also be that you are needing to progress in your sanctification and working out the reality that Christ is in you coming out of you. And he intends to love other people, strangers and the lost, but yes, absolutely, people right here with his love. And he knows you can't do it, so he's going to empower you to do it. How can we even understand that? I'm going to wrap it up with homework. Because that's how Steve rolls. And Ian, did you have any other homework sheets left over? If you didn't get a homework sheet, you can slip your hand up and Ian will give you a homework sheet if you didn't get it. It's a few people. And I'm going to give you an example and we'll be all done. How do we see it? 
Well, Romans 12 tells us here to outdo one another with showing love. And he gives us all these commands. Depending on how many commentaries and what commentaries you read or your own study, everybody comes up with different numbers of how many commands there are here. It's, it's actually harder than you realize to, to tease them out. So how could we understand them? Because they're all unpacking just what I've been trying to unpack doctrinally or theologically this morning. And I think you could do it this way, and I'm simply going to read it to you. So if you have Romans in front of you, I'll read you this section, and I'll explain to you what you need to do in your homework. On one side of the column, you have the pattern of Jesus. On the other side of the column, you have real life. This is what I want you to do is as you read through it this week, simply start asking which of these commands do I see Jesus fulfill? Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end or to the fullness, to the completion. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taken a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them, with the towel that was wrapped around him, I'm simply going to stop there for this moment. I grew up in a faith tradition that taught me uh, lots of things that were wrong. It taught me lots that was right. And one of the things in that faith tradition they did every single year on New Year's Eve was they called a watch night service and they washed feet. Which is what they did. I don't think it's commanded that way. I also don't think it's wrong to do it. And I'll never forget as a little boy, the pastor that I was, I, I got saved under his ministry there, and he baptized me uh, for whatever reason that year, and it just sticks out in my brain. I got called over, and he washed my feet. And even as a little boy, I remember the flood of insecurities of whether or not there'd be toe jam when I took off my socks. And isn't that how often we approach Jesus? Like somehow I got to get myself fixed up to make myself acceptable when the whole point of the story is in our unacceptable parts. He holds them carefully in his hands and tenderly cares for them. And this is what I want you to do is I want you to look at that pattern of Jesus and then see the commands. And I gave you one example. He washes his Judas's feet. It makes it very clear here Judas is there. He holds his enemy's feet in his hand and he tenderly demonstrates love. He is then fulfilling what we see in Romans 12 of outdoing in honor and overcoming evil with good. Union with Christ in the community means more than loving like Jesus, but it never means less than that. I'm going to say that again. Union with Christ in the community means more than loving like Jesus, but it never means less than that. Union with Christ the fact that he is in us and we are in him is the spiritual reality that a believer is in Christ. Christ is in them, and the controlling reality of every relationship in their life is to be Christ coming out of them. Union with Christ means that we will have a disposition of love toward other believers in a sacrificial, initiating, and persistent way, just like Jesus has loved us. We will do this because we are united in him. So, the life of Christ... Is the pattern for our relationships. But our union with Christ is the power that enables living that pattern. May we be a people 
following the pattern empowered by the power of Christ as we love God and others. Father.